0: Thank you for listening to a Christ-centered message from Grace Community Church. We are committed to proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology and trust that you will receive encouragement as we study today's passage together. Today we begin our new series in the Sermon on the Mount. This is the message of the King. Matthew chapter 5, if you go in your Bibles, will be in verses 1 and 2 today. This is the introduction. Nowhere in Scripture will we see the, the phrase, Sermon on the Mount. That was attributed to St. Augustine, who called it the Sermon on the Mount. And this sermon is found in Matthew chapter 5 and 6 and 7. This is the first of five major discourses, teachings of Jesus in Matthew's Gospel, In the Sermon of the Mount, Jesus confronted the external systems of religion, and most directly, the legalism of the Pharisees of his generation. When we come to the end of chapter 7, Jesus closes this sermon with a call to genuine faith, a call to salvation. Now, beloved, this is the greatest sermon ever given. And I would say probably the second greatest sermon ever given was not one of mine, okay? It was Jesus in Luke 24. You didn't have to laugh that much. In Luke 24, Jesus was walking on the road to Emmaus after he had resurrected from the dead. And he was walking with two disciples. And he preached himself from all of the Old Testament. Beginning in the Old Testament, he said, this is me, this is me, this is me, this is me, all the way through. And those two disciples, and it didn't, that message did not get recorded. But when they sat with Jesus and he broke bread, gave thanks, broke bread, their eyes were open at that table, and they said, Did not our hearts burn within us that sermon? Now, that one, we don't, have the, we don't have all of that sermon. We just have he gave a sermon. He preached himself from the Old Testament. Here we have Matthew taking this teaching and putting it together right here for us in these three chapters. In the Gospel of Luke you'll find about half of Matthew 5, 6, and 7 preached in different locations, different settings, different times. So we need not think that Jesus only preached this message one time and he said, well, I've covered that, don't need to handle that again. But that this is the message of the kingdom and wherever Jesus went, he was preaching and teaching this message. It's the greatest sermon ever recorded. The church desperately needs this message. Beloved, we need this message. We need to allow this message to take root in the soil of our hearts. Loved ones, if we belong to the king of kings, then our hearts will yield to his lordship. What works out from that is distinctiveness. That the people of God The people who belong in the kingdom of God, they will live in such a radical upside down way that non-believers will notice something is refreshingly different about you. And the follow-up question is where we'll end this sermon in 1 Peter 3, what is the hope that you have? It's very different than having to wear a placard sign and running around and yelling and screaming at people in a hateful tone about how they're going to split hell wide open. If we simply are filled with the Spirit of God, loved ones, and we live in obedience and submission to the King, what I read in my Bible is that people will be coming to us saying, can you tell me about who it is? that you serve, who changed you. And to the degree that we do not see this happening in our lives is to the degree that we're blending in. We're not standing out. And may God help us in this by the power of his spirit. When disciples dwell together in unity under the lordship of Jesus Christ, the non-believers will pay attention. They'll see the difference. So together... By the grace of God, my prayer is that we will bear as much fruit as possible for the kingdom of God and for the glory of Jesus Christ. Can you agree to that prayer? Is that the desire of your heart? Glory to God. Glory to Christ. Build your church. This is our prayer when we enter into this study together. Matthew chapter 5. Two verses, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, this is the end of the reading of God's word for our text today. This is a Christ-centered message, and whenever there's Christ-centered preaching, the result ought to be Christ-centered living. The two go together. They're not separated from one another. That what I believe is actually what I do, and I do what I believe. What I love, that's going to drive the passions of my life. Here's what we're unpacking today. This is the big idea. What must we grasp to receive the greatest benefit from the Sermon on the Mount? It's not wrong for me. It's not selfish of us to say, how can we get the most out of this? We have set aside time on a Sunday morning on the Lord's Day to gather together to hear the Word of God, to sing praises to the Lord. It's not wrong for us to say, can I get the most out of this? How do we get the most out of this sermon? The greatest benefit. We need to understand the context and the content. First of all, we need to observe the setting. Here we see in Matthew chapter 5, We see Messiah. He's on a mountain. So we're unpacking. We're looking at this in a way of investigation. Okay, when is this sermon happening? Where is it? When and where? We're asking common questions. It's a helpful approach to Bible study. And Matthew answers, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. It was the right time for this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, in the Scriptures. This is the right time. This is the moment. When Jesus goes up on the mountain. Now, if we look back to the Old Testament, and we do a lot of this where we see the Old Testament connecting with the New Testament. Part one, part two. First half, second half, fulfillment. In Genesis, we read that God sovereignly chose Abraham. He promised to make his name great, to give him a people and a land. And he died not seeing the fulfillment of that promise, but he died in faith, Hebrews 11 tells us. Abraham And uh, Sarah's son, Isaac, the Lord came to Isaac. He blessed him. He reaffirmed that covenant with Isaac. God blessed Jacob, the son of Isaac. Jacob would have 12 sons. His name would be changed to Israel. And if you recall the account of Joseph, one of his sons, betrayed by his brothers, sent to Egypt as a slave, and there God was sending one of the 12 ahead of the... This family, to save them alive, to preserve them. God's rescue mission was unfolding and it would not be thwarted. So Joseph, through all of these horrific circumstances, was sent ahead to Egypt. And there the Lord used him and he spared Egypt alive through the famine, and nations came, and then God provided for Israel, and the Pharaoh said, bring your family down to Egypt, and you can live wherever you want to live. We see in Genesis, and they chose, Joseph said, let's put them outside of Egypt in the land of Goshen, and there is where the people, the, the 12 sons, the family of Israel developed into a mighty nation. When Exodus unfolds, then another pharaoh arises, and he doesn't know Joseph, and he doesn't care about Joseph's God. And he sees those people out there in the land of Goshen, and he's threatened by them. So he begins to oppress them and afflict them and persecute them. And they cry out to the Lord for a deliverer, and Moses by that time is in the wilderness And the Lord meets with Moses at the burning bush, and he says, Moses, I've heard the affliction, the cries of my people, and I'm coming down to rescue them. You're going on my behalf. And through Moses, the Lord delivered his people, and he rescued his people. And we see in the book of Exodus, 10 plagues. And those 10 powerful, mighty judgments of God's hand, all they are is a sneak peek, as to the coming judgment, what the coming judgment will be upon this world and upon all who reject Jesus Christ as Lord and King. It really matters. Those 10 plagues that decimated Egypt, they're just a small display of the power and the glory and the majesty of our living God. The Lord delivered his people out of Egypt. They went through the Red Sea. Pharaoh's army was drowned in the Red Sea. And then they get out into the wilderness, and the Lord calls Moses up to a mountain. It's Mount Sinai. And on that mountain, the Lord delivered his law to and through Moses to his people. It's important for us to understand this, beloved, that grace always precedes the law. God delivered his people from Egypt. Why? What what good were they doing? What law were they keeping? They weren't. They cried out to the Lord, and not because of anything they were or anything they were doing, the Lord rescued them, the Lord saved them, brought them out, and then he graciously gave to him, to them the law so that they would know God, so that they would understand how do we rightly relate to this God who is unlike any other, other God. How do we know him, love him, serve him, Worship him and enjoy him forever. And God gave on that mountain, Mount Sinai, his law through Moses. In Leviticus 18 and verse 3, the Lord, through Moses to his people, is reminding them of where they've been, he's telling them of where they're going and how they are to be distinctively different, okay? So when you're, if you're walking out as a father with your children and your wife and you, everything you own and you're walking through the Red Sea and all behind you is a, is a decimated Egypt and all of their gods were laid waste, you're not gonna have to wonder, I wonder if I serve the right God. You have seen a powerful display of our God is alive. My family, aren't we glad that He has chosen us, loved us, called us, and delivered us. Aren't we glad we don't serve those gods back there? Yeah, Dad, good point. We're alive. And then when they get to the other side, and oh no, here comes Pharaoh's army. But don't worry, children. Don't worry, family, because our God lives and reigns and will provide. And Moses lowers his hand, and Pharaoh's army is covered and drowned in the sea. And they praised the Lord and then complained a few moments later. This is the course of Israel. In Leviticus 18.3, the Lord says to his people, you shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, past tense. That's where I delivered you from. Don't, Don't be like them. Where you came from, don't be like them. And you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. This is your future. This is where you're going. Don't be like the people in Egypt. Don't do what they did. And where I'm going to put you, don't do what they do. You shall not walk in their statutes. Don't walk in their ways. Why? Because you're special. You're different. You're not like all the other nations. You belong to me. And the Lord would repeatedly say through his walk in my statutes. Walk in my way. Walk in my law. Israel's f- history is filled with the accounts of God's faithfulness to his people. And it's also filled with over and over and over again. They were rebellious. They were disobedient. They walked away. And the Lord was faithful. Faithful to them throughout the generations. Moses promised in Deuteronomy 18 and verse 15, he said this. He said, there's another prophet coming. There's another prophet coming. In Deuteronomy 18:15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. Moses was getting ready to die. He was getting ready to, to be no more. Where is this prophet coming from? From among you, from your brothers. And here's his his warning, his command: it is to him you shall listen. He's saying, When the Lord sends this prophet who's greater than I am, listen to him. Hear what he's saying and hear it with your heart, and obey, hear with the intention to obey. And I'm wondering this morning, as you've gathered in worship today, have you come with the intention to hear that you might obey? That's where God's blessing is found. That is where it abounds. Listen to Him. It was the right time and the right place for this sermon in Jesus' ministry, not just in Scripture, in the whole 66 books of the Bible, but it was the right time in the right place in Jesus' ministry. So if we're going to understand, well, who, who penned the gospel of Matthew? Okay, you get one guess. If you guessed Matthew, you guessed it properly. It's Matthew. Well, who is Matthew? He was the tax collector, an Israelite. He was hated by Jewish people. He was hated by Romans. He was hated by everybody, but he was rich. So he had friends, other friends who were rich, and Jesus met him. And suddenly his wealth and his position and his status didn't mean anything anymore because you can't fill that vacuum in your heart, in your life, with riches, wealth, power, position, entertainment, hobbies. It doesn't fill it. Only Jesus. And Jesus met Matthew and he called him. And Matthew is writing, his audience, the ones that he is writing to are fellow Israelites, Hebrews. And his concern is that he will see, he will help them to see his audience that the Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is king. We've been waiting for a king. And, and the stair steps that we talked about in, the, in the, the Psalms of Ascent, that they would go up, up, up. The same thing happens when we get to the Beatitudes. They go up. And as they go up, Here's another paradox. They actually go down deeper and deeper and deeper into our being. They get at us at our core. And here we see that Matthew is so concerned that the New Testament uh, is connected to the Old Testament that his readers would understand the kingdom of God is the kingdom of heaven. So with an Israelite, a Hebrew audience, he doesn't use that term kingdom of God, but he uses the term kingdom of heaven so that he doesn't just lose his hearers at the outset, but that they hear and they respond and they listen and they weigh this message out. Go back with me in your Bible just to the chapter before as Jesus' ministry is unfolding. Jesus is tempted in chapter four. He's been baptized in chapter three. John the Baptist' ministry is already coming to a close in Matthew's account. And Jesus begins teaching after the temptation in the wilderness. Matthew 4 and verse 17, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, All right, this is important to us. What is he, where does he begin? What's his launching point for his preaching ministry? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Then he finds disciples, and his first four disciples are called, While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him, and going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. So we see discipleship beginning to unfold. And what did he do? He went throughout the, all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. And seeing the crowds... What did Jesus do? He went up on the mountain. So here the crowds are building. All of these people are gathering. The scriptures were being fulfilled. Jesus made his way up onto a mountain, And mountains are significant in the Bible. In the Old Testament, we've looked at it. Mount Sinai, we received the law. Here we see in the Sermon of the Mount, the New Testament is just beginning. It's just unfolding. And Jesus is making his way to a mountain. And here we hear the Son of God's exposition of the law of God. Let me explain this law to you. Soon we will come to Mount Calvary where Jesus would be crucified for the sins of all who would trust in him for salvation, and then mount all of it where Jesus ascends, and one day he will come again. So pay attention to the mountains in scripture. It's important, it's highlighted, it's elevated. Even as Mount Zion, we've studied that, making the way to Jerusalem there on that mountain, nestled among mountains. Observe as the crowds are growing. Now who's making up the crowds? Who's there? You have religious people. They doubt Jesus. Most of them hate Jesus and they can't wait to kill Jesus. Then you have the massive amount of people, the majority of people, they're just they're listening. They might be doing what you're doing today. I'm not, maybe you're saying I'm not a fully committed follower of Jesus Christ, but I'm I'm weighing it out. I'm hearing what you're saying, Pastor. But I'm not all in. That was a large portion of the crowd. And many of the crowd like that that make up that crowd. When Jesus would give hard teaching, they would say, check please. Like John chapter 6, and they would walk away and say, that's too difficult. I'm not staying with this teacher anymore. I'm going back to my old way of life. But then there were the disciples. Then there were the ones who were called, who understood who Jesus is, the Christ of God. And they surrendered their lives to him. And that is a believer. That is a person who's in the kingdom of God. So observe the setting. It's important if we're going to rightly understand this message. And next of all, secondly, hear the speaker. Hear the speaker. Listen to the speaker. Listen to what he's saying. Jesus is the one who took the exalted seat. So we've answered the question of when is this? Where is this happening? Now, who is this? When he sat down, his disciples came to him. What is Jesus doing here? Is he tired? Is he sitting down and you know why? Because that was the position of a teacher, a rabbi, seated. But on this occasion, the one sitting down on a rock is the one who created that rock. The one who is sitting with the crowds, the massive amounts of people, is the one who created those people and gave them life. The one who is sitting is the Lamb of God, the Son of God in human flesh. So we better listen to him. We better pay attention to what he has to say. He's seated. He's not on a mountain like Moses was that was on fire. You remember what the Lord told Moses? Tell the people, stay back. And And Moses said, I did, Lord. I told them. And the Lord said, tell them again. Don't come to the base of the mountain. Don't touch the base of the mountain because you can't handle this fire. You can't handle the presence of the Lord. You're not ready yet. And Moses went back down and said, Reminder, don't come to the mountain. The Lord said, I'm supposed to go up and we're gonna leave it at that for now. But on this occasion in the New Testament, Matthew 5, Jesus is on the mountain and there's no fire burning. There's no lava flowing He's sitting there inviting, welcoming all who would listen, all who would gather near. He has a message of grace. All authority has been given to this one. That's where Matthew will end his gospel. And so he sits down in this seat of authority to teach. Jesus took the position, but Jesus is the prophet. He's the one greater than Moses. He's the one Moses was telling about. Listen to him. Can you imagine if I told you next week I'm going to sit down, but not sit down to teach, because Jesus is going to be here. Jesus will be given the message next week. Can you imagine how many people would come? But you ought not think that if Jesus was speaking, then I would yield, then I would submit, then I would have a heart change. No, you wouldn't. Because his plan is that broken men, Human servants, pastors, ministers, teachers take the living word of God and deliver it and the heart is opened by the spirit of God, it's just as powerful because it is the word of the living God. If you receive it, you receive it. If you reject it, you are not rejecting me. You are rejecting the God who made you, loves you, Came in Christ and died for you. You're not rejecting me. Sometimes I can take it personally because I'm human, but I ought not. But it's love. My heart breaks when someone rejects the message. Jesus is the prophet greater than Moses. He touched the masses, but he trained his disciples. He cared about the masses, but he invested his life in the majority of his time into the training of his disciples. That Greek word is methetes. It means a pupil, a learner, someone under the tutelage of another, the teaching of another, the training of another. If you've ever put your kid in gymnastics or taekwondo or karate or a sport, you're entrusting them to someone who teaches. It doesn't work if they don't listen, which is most kids right? like All right, pay attention, listen up. All right, pay attention, listen up. How many times do you have to say that if you're a teacher, a teacher, a coach? Until they get it. Until they realize, ooh, I should have listened. You had something I needed to hear. True disciples of Jesus. Listen now, they will submit. They will listen to you and they will obey their teacher. True disciples of Jesus. So listen, if you are a person and you say, well, I don't submit to Jesus and I don't listen to Jesus. I don't obey his word. I don't, I'm never in his word. It doesn't really have any impact on me. I'm here. All right, this is great. I, I gather and I'm sitting here with everybody else, but from week to week, his word really doesn't have any bearing on my life. Don't call yourself a follower of Christ. This is how the message cuts. And would you rather know that now while you're alive or when it's too late and you're in judgment? True disciples of Jesus will become like their master teacher. And if someone says, I really don't have a desire, I want to be like me. I want people like me. I don't really want to be like Jesus. Then stop, prayerfully evaluate, Lord, where am I with you? Observe the setting, hear the speaker. This is no ordinary speaker. This is the Son of God, and he is sitting down, and he is to teach. And thirdly, consider the substance. What is it that Jesus is saying? Jesus is here explaining life in God's kingdom. This is the what. This is the content. This is the subject matter. He opened his mouth and taught them, saying... Like, is that a little redundant? Like he opened his mouth? Did Matthew really need to write that? He opened his mouth. Well, he didn't use puppets. He didn't use drawings. At times he did. John chapter 8, he drew in the sand. I have no idea what he drew in the sand. He opened his mouth because words matter. Jesus used Words. His words would cause many followers to walk away. His words would cause many to come follow him. His words would lead to one day the religious leaders taking him and his words, condemning him to death. May God help us to open our mouths and speak words of life. Can you just think for a moment this past week How many words came out of our mouths that were life giving, Christ centered, gospel centered words? Did you have any conversations like this? Jesus opened his mouth, he began to teach. When we approach Bible study, we want to understand three important aspects what has God said? What does God mean? How do I respond and obey? Not, not what do I think about what God said? What is my interpretation about? What has God said? What does God mean? Not what does it mean to me? Well, what that means to me is it doesn't matter. What did God intend by what he was saying? A sermon is to declare this is what God has said, this is what God means, and then a sermon brings about, and our Bible study brings about the application, so what, how do we respond? And I'm going to ask you that at the end of the message today. In light of this message, this message of the king, how should we respond? It's not just hearing for the sake of information. Preaching is for the goal and the purpose of transformation he opened his mouth, and he taught them about God's kingdom. He taught them. Jesus is the king, and here he's delivering his manifesto for his kingdom, for God's kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. The reality is, beloved, some are in God's kingdom, and some are not in God's kingdom. You might say, wait a second, pastor, I thought you've taught us that God is king over everything. He's the king of kings. Yes, but when it comes to the kingdom of heaven, what Jesus is talking about, he's talking about those who belong to him, those who recognize and confess Jesus as my king. He is my king. He, as the people of God, is our king. So there are some who belong to him, and there are some who are against him. There are some under the sound of my voice this morning who are in the kingdom of God and there are some who are not in the kingdom of God. A helpful summary of God's kingdom to help us understand this as we enter into this teaching uh, from David Platt, Daniel Akin, and Tony Merida in their book, The Christ-Centered Exposition of Matthew. Listen to what they say about the kingdom message. The message of the kingdom is the gospel. And we've... Spent much time, and we come back to this often, G-O-S-P-E-L. What is the gospel? What is the saving message of God? G, God created you to know him, love him, enjoy him, worship him forever. O, Genesis 3, our sin separated us from this holy God. We're in trouble, all of us. Death, we die. S, sins cannot be removed by doing good deeds tell me how much do i gotta i'll just just write a check pastor i'll pay off the building what do you want me to do and and i'll be good with god you can't because sins cannot be removed by doing good deeds so paying the price for my sin for our sin jesus christ came god in flesh born of a virgin he lived the life that you and i can never live sinless He died the death that you deserve to die, that I deserve to die. As he hung on the cross, suspended between heaven and earth, that God's wrath was poured out on Jesus Messiah for me, for you. Paying the price for our sin so that anyone who turns from their sin and trusts in him alone will be given life that never ends. This is the gospel. This is the good news. This is the message. Every sermon has to get to the cross. It's not about information. It's about do you know Christ? Are you in a right relationship with him? The message of the kingdom is the gospel. The citizens of the kingdom are disciples. Are you a citizen of the kingdom of God? Then you're a disciple. You can't be a Christian and not a disciple. The demands of the kingdom is discipleship. A citizen of the kingdom, a disciple saying, tell me what Jesus has said, and Lord, help me to obey. The outpost of this kingdom is the church. The spread of this kingdom is the mission. The enemies of this kingdom include fallen angels and Satan himself, demons. I make no mistake in thinking that everything will go against the preaching of this message in here, internal conflict in here in a church you don't think there's going to be distractions to keep you in the coming weeks from being under the teaching and preaching of this message the message of our king yeah there will oh may we be resolved to serve our king the coming of the kingdom this is our hope He is coming again. So the kingdom, when Jesus came the first time, he ushered it in. The kingdom is here, and that's already, it's here. But does it look like Jesus reigns and rules and it's all at peace right now? I don't know, anybody watch any news this week? Does it look like everything is just going fine and dandy? Not too much. There's chaos and confusion everywhere, right? So already the kingdom is here, but not yet. The kingdom is yet to come. It's coming, and it is our hope. Lastly, embrace the significance. Embrace the significance. Jesus taught the kingdom life is upside down. This is the why. This is the why. My desire as a pastor is to faithfully declare the word and not get in the way of this message. Don't mess up the greatest message ever given. How do you mess it up? Change it and make it what it isn't saying? Say something differently with it? Skip verses, apologize for it. No. This message is significant. And my desire personally to embrace this message. For you who are listening or joining, embrace the significance of this message. When you understand the why of the message, to embrace this. We need to define it first of all from the negative. All right, sometimes to help understand a subject or something, you have to first of all say, what, it is, what is is not? It is not. What is the kingdom? The kingdom is not, in this sermon, okay, these, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, this message is not, how does a person become a Christian? Okay? So if somebody at your work is asking you, hey, how do I become a Christian? The answer is not, read Matthew 5, 6, and 7 and do all that you find therein. That's like somebody who's drowning, and you say, hey, this anchor really helps ships catch. This message sinks us all, if we're honest. If we hear what Jesus is saying, then we're going to throw up our hands and say, I can't do this. This message is far more than a new moral code offered by a up-and-coming uh, teacher out of Nazareth, and he's got some new ways, and we used to follow over here, and this rabbi taught this, and that rabbi, and now this rabbi's teaching us something. Let's do what he says. Let's see what happens. Let's see, see how it works out. No, that's not what this is. If keeping this message re- resulted in our salvation, beloved, no one would ever be saved because Matthew 5, 6, and 7 would crush us, but Jesus He lived out Matthew 5, 6, and 7 in our place so that we might trust him and become like us. So then what is this message? This message, this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount is this, what Christians will be like. This is what it is like to live kingdom life. Matthew 5, Matthew 6, Matthew 7. If a person has been born of God beloved they will be changed. This sermon, the sermon on the mount is a description of the lifestyle of all who belong to God's kingdom that they have recognized Jesus as their king. And let me tell you something this message this message is going to prick at all of our hearts how we respond to this message will be a strong indicator of what's going on inside of us along with our true citizenship of which kingdom. Where do we really belong? Have your hand on your pulse of your heart of how you respond to the sermon. If you respond with, ouch, oh, that's me. Lord, help me. I want to I obey you. That sounds very different because it is very different than no. Tell me what I got to do. What do I got to do? I got to do this? Ah, I'm not. I tried that once and it didn't work. I'll go back to my own way of living. I'll do it myself. Anybody ever been to the dentist? You sit in the chair. They gown you up, right? They put the thing on there. And then they get this horrible instrument that's about that long, kind of looks like a pen. It's not a pen. It's a violent, cruel instrument with which they go around and they clean your teeth. You know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. And I always know when they're working through the teeth, I have a few teeth that are missing some enamel. And right at the edge is the nerves. And I'm just counting down because they're over here. We're good. We're fine. They're picking over here, picking over there. And it's coming up here, over here. And when they touch that horrible, violent instrument on that nerve, which is missing that enamel, my hands tense up. uh, You know, and they're like, oh, yeah. And I don't know what they're seeing but it's like they can see more than i can see up in there never have i stood up thrown that light out of my eyes ripped off the bib what is wrong with your instrument i've never done that there's nothing wrong with the instrument the problem is in it's with my tooth it's in my teeth i'm missing some enamel that I had when I was younger and whatever, I don't have it, too much Coke or Mountain Dew or whatever, right? And that instrument reveals the problem. When our hearts are convicted by this sermon, understand it's not a problem with Jesus' sermon. The sermon is doing what it's intended to do, and it's getting to the problem in the nerve of our heart, of our soul, and it's showing us this is an area you're not yet yielded to your king. So, what are you going to do? Submit or fight? Fight those people taking care of your teeth, you're going to lose your teeth. Fight this message. Resist this message. Walk away from Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And as Jesus would say, what does is, what is it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Be here for these sermons. Prioritize your time to be under the teaching of God's word. Sinclair Ferguson described these sermons as kingdom life in a fallen world. This is what we said, Psalm 134, how beautiful it is and pleasant, how good and pleasant when brothers dwell together in unity. This is what it looks like, radically different when Jesus' prayer of John 17 is answered and we dwell together as one. When we love one another and we serve one another. This is Christianity 101. Beloved, I wish that I could tell you that if today you have never trusted in Christ and today you cry out to him and you find he saves you and you say, God, I'm a sinner, and you trust in Jesus and he saves you, I would love to tell you that your life is going to get better and that it's going to go well. It's just not a reality. Now you have an enemy. You used to belong to the kingdom of darkness and now you've been translated into the kingdom of light and now you have all forces of hell against you but greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So you need not fear but you need to be prepared for persecution and suffering and trials. And in all suffering and trials the Lord is working for our good and for his glory and we can't always see it right now. Often we don't see it right now but it's true and we can trust him. And Peter would write in 1 Peter 3, 14, he said, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you may not, but if you should, you will be blessed. And that's where we're going next week, blessed, a happiness, a joy. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Can we just, as a family, just talk for a minute? As a church family, has anyone seen something different about us and how we love one another and how we serve one another and how we go through trials together? that they are asking us, how are you different? Why are you different? And can I know the one that you know? Can you tell me about the hope that you have in you? Beloved, together, let's grasp. So that we can get the greatest benefit from this sermon. Here it is, grasp this, the setting. Look at it, observe the setting, Jesus, Messiah. There he is, he's up on the mountain. Listen to him, hear the speaker. He's sitting in this exalted seat. He has a message for our souls. Consider the substance. Way out. What is Jesus saying as he explains the kingdom of God and life in this kingdom? And embrace the significance. Don't walk away. Don't say another time, another day. Jesus taught his disciples to live this life upside down in his kingdom. Are you surrendered to this king? So the message ends with this How do we respond? If Jesus was here preaching this message today, how would you respond? Do so today. And how can we maybe as a, as a pastor, as elders, how can we help you take that next step? Soon we're gonna have a baptism service. We're gonna put this on the calendar soon for those who have recently come to faith in Christ to, prof- to make a public profession of faith that Jesus is my king He's my Lord. Maybe that would be you. But what the king leads us to do, let's do it. Let's surrender together. Let's stand together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this message. Oh, Father, will you help me by your spirit to prepare well, to study well, to deliver this this timeless message? in a timely way. As we live in a chaotic time, a time when so many people are hurting and suffering and brokenhearted, Father, will you use us as the people of grace to represent you well to those in need? Jesus, thank you for coming near. Thank you for coming not to condemn to rescue thank you for demonstrating your love the great love of God for sinners help us to just look to you the author and finisher of our faith and live in submission and surrender to you our king in whose name we pray amen thank you again